The Accutron Show. Accutron. It's not a timepiece. It's a conversation piece. With your host, Bill McCuddy, and contributors, Scott Alexander and David Graver. Because I worked at Time Magazine at that time, I was allowed into a press pool in the White House. So I spent six months in the press pool, in Michelle Obama's press pool. The voice you heard at the top of the show is today's guest, award-winning magazine editor and author Kate Betts. But first up, me, Bill McCuddy, culture writer Scott Alexander, and editor David Graver. We're talking about fashion in this ever-changing world and what's coming next on this episode of The Accutron Show. Stay tuned. David Scott, what creates a sense of style? What dictates it? Well, the the funny thing, I always get caught up in this paradox of style where I'm like, okay, I look at the fashion, that's how I'm supposed to dress, but then the really interesting people dress differently from that, and then it's just very confusing to me. The man you just heard talking has a mustard-colored T-shirt on. What does it say on it? Chaotic good. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> uh, the man you just heard is wearing a Dungeons & Dragons shirt. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, indeed. Oh, wow. <laughs> David, your sense of style, where does it come from? Uh, well, I like sailors. <laughs> <laughs> I like stripes. It comes I mean, from on the town. <laughs> yeah. You're I, wearing a French sailor's uh, Indeed. I shirt recently right now. overhauled my wardrobe and I decided to only wear striped shirts. I love wearing a suit jacket um, generally all year round um, and skinny jeans but some t- or like dress pants. I don't wear sweatpants. Um, they've been vetoed in my home. I actually don't feel comfortable in them. I feel less than me. I feel like a lesser version of the self that I can be. So even from work, even for work from home, I'm still dressing up every day. A lot of times I wear a collared shirt at home too. But I wonder, just FYI, I am wearing a suit jacket over my Dungeons and Dragons. You are indeed. Wait, there's pants that match that? <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about style today because our guest is Kate Betts. She has uh, spent some time at Vogue. She kind of is out of the Devil Wears Prada movie. And we're going to ask her about Meryl Streep, whether that's an accurate portrayal of the world that she spent a lot of time in. She was the editor of Harper's Bazaar, and uh, she has uh, moved on since then, wrote a book about Michelle Obama. And so I'm really interested to know what she thinks of any administration that's happened since then, what uh, their sense of style was. And we're going to also do a deep dive into what's happening in the pandemic. I mean, what is, is style dead or do we have, uh, style you mentioned sweatpants. Sleeping. Ta- style's <laughs> taking a really long nap. Yeah. In March, through March and April, every pitch that I got from a fashion brand was, what's your work from home style? What's your work from home style? And a lot oh. of those emails were filled with sweatpants. But it's all. But the, the irony being, it's all waste up on Zoom, you know. So That's well, I true. did a Zoom. I did a Zoom fundraiser the other night, and I thanked them for the first time. I was wearing a tie in like six months, and sadly, <laughs> it's the only thing that fits still in my wardrobe. So <laughs> I've said it before, but I put the COVID nineteen on uh, in terms of pounds, and uh, but I got to wear a tie, which was nice. You were wearing it around your head, though, so <laughs> I don't know if that counts. Bill. It's the only thing that fits. Uh, fashion, what it means, where it's going, and what it was like in the beginning. She spent many years in Paris. We'll talk about that. Has she seen that? Oh, Paris. Has we'll get back there someday. We'll always have it. Yeah. Should everyone spend a year in Paris? Everyone yeah, should indeed. spend a year in okay. Paris. All right. Some people listening may not agree, uh, but the and three of us do. And a year in Spain. All right. <laughs> and a year in Bangkok. Today's podcast is brought to you by Rand McNally. We're traveling <laughs> the world so you don't have to. Some of my favorite memories, some of the most formative experiences I had were when I was young, penniless, and in European cities, just kind of getting by on baguettes and, and dust. 
How, I mean, did you guys, and not the fun kind of dust. Mm, the, dust. Uh, <laughs> did you guys have any formative travel experiences growing up? Not that I think informed my style of my sense of style. I'm not sure. I mean, I would go to other parts of the United States and I, I wasn't I wasn't influenced by it. I was one of those people that sort of got dressed in what I was told to wear. And uh, Bill, you liked to summer in Akron. I mean, I'm not sure <laughs> who doesn't. I mean, my first solo European travel was to London, and London informed me a great deal from a literary and theatrical perspective to even my understanding of like people and style personality. And on that trip, my best friend from childhood sent me an email saying that she was in Paris and I hopped on a train and met her on the top of Sacré-Cœur and had a surprise Paris experience that and ultimately changed my life. I guess without traveling the world, all of us went to the movies when we were kids. And some of the early like James Bond movies where they were traveling around the world, I got to see, I understand the London thing perfectly because that had its own signature and style and it got imported over here eventually. But that that was a thing. Savile Row, you heard about the the custom shirts and, and suitings and stuff like that. But uh, for me, it didn't, it didn't happen until like I got preppy, I guess, in high school. For me, the most important thing about travel was actually the way it sort of resets your eye for coming back home. Like you go away and you get used to sort of – you have to get to go away for a long enough time. You got to go away for six months or longer. And then when you come back, you see your own home culture in a completely different way. You can actually see what is American style. Oh, it's it's this contrast. If, if we're like a fish is in water. You know, we can't see the water until we – Go live on the land for a little while. Well, Kate Betts spent many years in Paris right out of college, and uh, we were going to learn how it informed her sense of style and what she brought back after uh, her baguettes and, and dust experience. And all of that is coming up right after this on The Accutron Show. The world runs on Accutron time. Accutron watches since 1960 from New York City to around the world. Kate Betts, welcome to the Accutron Show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being a part of this. We uh, we are big fans, and you know me, and and uh, these guys know your work as well. Kate, I was in the magazine industry for a long time, and I'm always fascinated with how people started in the industry. Can you talk a little bit about how you broke in? Yes, of course. Um, well, I went to Paris. I graduated from Princeton. It was 1986. I had no idea what to do with my life. Everybody in my class seemed to have a job on Wall Street at Solomon Brothers. And I went to Paris. I mean, it seemed like a good idea. I really wanted to be a foreign correspondent and work for Time Magazine, but I was rejected like three times for jobs there. So I ended up taking a job with Fairchild Publications, which was the publisher at the time of Women's Wear Daily and W, which were the kind of Bibles of the fashion industry. And I worked for a guy named John Fairchild, who was kind of the crazy, but crazy like a fox, owner and editor of Fairchild. And he spoke French and was also a Princetonian. And I spoke French fluently. And so I was able to communicate with designers and, you know, people in the haute couture world of Paris fashion. And that gave me a huge advantage. And Fairchild Publications was what specific magazines? Women's Wear Daily and W, and they also had a magazine at the time called M, which was the male oh, version yeah. of W. Yeah. I actually started working for M Magazine, um, and that was my original job there. 
But I eventually worked for all three publications. The very first thing I ever wrote, Kate, uh, was a review of m- computer mice. Um, did, <laughs> but, were there any sort of wow. early things you wrote that How you remember? How fashionable were those? <laughs> that you remember being sort of, you know, in that vein? Yes. I had to review different brands of bottled water. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and because... Fairchild liked these very recherche stories, and he was always looking for the best of the best. And some socialite had told him that the Ritz served the best bottled water, and so he decided that it was important to review bottled water. And I remember thinking, this is so ridiculous. But I also realized that the French especially take everything so seriously in the world (laughs) of taste and taste making. So it actually turned out to be a pretty funny story, if I remember. And did the Ritz have the best water? The Ritz had the best water. They still do. It's called Chateau Don. <laughs> and they still serve that. And the fact that I remember that 25 or 30 years later is really shocking. But, but you didn't have to speak French fluently. Have you seen Emily in Paris? <laughs> she just well, went over and started talking. Um, yeah. I I did really want to speak French. And it's interesting that you should say that because people always ask me why I learned to speak French or how I learned to speak French so well, because, and I'm not, you know, flattering myself here, but I lived with a family that had young children. So I learned all the street slang right away. I'd studied French in school, but what you learn in school is not the same as spoken French in daily life. So it was, that was what taught me to speak French. Those kids who would curse and, you know, slang was used around the house. Right. Um, but it was interesting because I really wanted to be French. I wanted to learn about French culture. I wanted to live in Paris for the rest of my life. And so I really engaged in the culture and I engaged with people. I met a lot of French kids my age. I only hung out with French people. And um, this is, going to sound a little off topic, but I was recently reading the new Avedon bio by um, Philip Gefter, the photography critic, and he had such an interesting life and he was so creative and so um, adventuresome in his work because he was so engaged and he, you know, his friends, I mean, he came of age professionally in New York at a time when there was so much going on in the art world. Um, and in dance and, you know, Jerry Robbins was one of his mentors. Lillian Bassman was his best friend. He had these incredible social groups, but he was engaged and alive. And he worked for Carmel Snow, who was editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar, who was quite famous. And she was friends with Cocteau and Picasso. And, you know, I mean, she was incredible also. <laughs> and um, And the reason I'm telling you this is because I feel like one of the great um, problems in the fashion business is that people get very um, disengaged and they're not curious about other worlds and other parts of culture. And they become very insular in fashion. And I think that's been a great detriment to that business. And when I read about Avedon, I realized, you know, Here's a guy who took Martha Graham dance classes so he could teach models how to move. Um, One of my first internships actually was at WWD uh, in 2003 when it was owned by Condé. And I was in the shoe closet. And my whole (laughs) life, 
was shoes come in and shoes go out and shoes come in and shoes go out. It, w- it was very that insular and that specific at that time. I'm really curious yeah. um, what you think the role of the fashion editor is today. Well, it's interesting that you asked that because I think one of the other big problems with the business is that it's become about solely about money and not at all about ideas. And that's also led the business down a very different path. Um, you know, it's it's since the 90s, I guess, or the late 90s when Arnaud and Pinot and these big, you know, luxury titans started buying up all the brands and remaking them. It's become a money game. Who has the biggest portfolio? Which brand makes the most money? And it's really hard for young people coming up or even just coming into the business to see the advantage of risk-taking. Risk-taking, ideas, um, saying what you really think, all those things are shunned and they're not allowed in the fashion world. But Couture was always about making dough, wasn't it? I mean, it wasn't, uh, these guys weren't in it for charity. Oh, no, no, no. Haute Couture is really just the loss leader of the industry. It's really just for image. Nobody makes money on Haute Couture. Uh Um, It's really just to show that you have this very high-end product, which actually is not that high-end at all because the margins are huge on things like handbags, and lipstick, and perfume, but that you're going to show these pictures of these extravagant creations, and then you're going to sell hundreds of millions of dollars worth of mass market product. Like the perfume, the the licensed products, Yeah. 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 Hey, give us a timeline sense now. So how long are you in Paris? Then you come to New York and what's the next job? So I stayed in Paris for five years and it was one of those breaking points where I realized I was either going to live there for the rest of my life or come home. And coincidentally, I had gotten a call from Anna Winter offering me a job as a fashion editor. And dun, dun, I dun. actually, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I didn't really want to be a fashion editor. I wanted to write. I had been living in Paris and managing the whole um, Women's Wear Daily and Fairchild Bureau there. And I wanted to get back to writing. So I turned the job down. Wow. Nobody turns Anna down. I was going to say. I turned her down. (laughs) And I thought, okay, that's it. I'm going to stay here for a while longer. David, did you hear about that in the closet? I hope you took out a life insurance policy. Anyway, she called me back like four months later and said, oh, I have a writing job I think you'll like. And um, I went, I moved back to New York. I was like back in New York at my desk at Vogue two weeks later, crying, sobbing, because I thought I'd made the biggest mistake of my life. And then I worked at Vogue for eight years. And were were was, you Anne Hathaway in the Double Wears no, Prada? No, I wasn't. Were you Emily and Blunt? No, you weren't Emily Blunt. <laughs> well, where does that, does that movie get it right at all? Yes, it does. So she was like that. I mean, obviously, Anna Wintour is going through unbelievable stuff right now. She's being, you know, uh, Andre Leontali has said she treated people horribly. And as we are recording this, she's sort of doing damage control. But the yeah. but the the basic idea of The Devil Wears Prada was Meryl Streep pretty much got it right. Yeah. I mean, what's really interesting um, about that movie and what I always thought was hilarious was the Meryl Streep monologue about the blue sweater because that kind of made the movie. Um, so remind people I, about that. Well, she kind of explains, you know, um, Anne Hathaway is having this moment and the boss is yelling at her for something and she's like, why does fashion even matter? Who even cares if you wear a blue sweater or a green sweater or whatever? And 
And the Anna Winter character goes into a long speech explaining how, you know, you might not think what walks down the runway is important, but the blue dress in the Haute Couture collection will eventually become a blue sweater that you will buy at Banana Republic. And, you know, it will influence the mass market all the way down. And I always thought that is that monologue really made the movie, gave it kind of an interesting value and perspective and put the whole fashion business into perspective. It anchored it in reality. Honestly, I agree. I'm, I actually, I'm um, pre-COVID, I contributed um, social reporting to U.S. Vogue online. So my job was, as you know, was simply going to parties and then reporting back to Vogue.com about the parties, which was a you remarkable experience. This is just one more example yeah. of why this guy has the best effing job on the planet. I enjoy and we that have to hear it every week. <laughs> Jesus, God. But, okay, let's just, from... Well, from, I'll tell you something about that um, monologue because I had always heard from friends of mine who were friends with Meryl Streep that she wrote the monologue and added it into the script. Oh, wow. And I really wanted to find out if that was true. And um, my sister used to have a house upstate in um, Great Barrington. And there's a famous, there was a famous market there called Guido's and it's like an organic market. And I was going there very early in the morning. I was in a cooking phase and I went to the market one morning. There was only one car in the parking lot and I walked in and there was only one person in the whole store. And it was Meryl Streep. She lives up there. And I was like, oh, my God, it's Meryl Streep. I'm going to ask her if she really did add that monologue into the script. And she was standing over this, like, pile of fruit and vegetables and talking to herself and gesturing. And it was a little weird, but I just thought, She'll act to anybody. She'll act to anything. (laughs) Acting to the produce. She's in the supermarket. It's 8 a.m. on a Saturday. (laughs) What do I have to lose? So I went up to her and I introduced myself and we talked for a few minutes. I said, you know, I have a question I want to ask you. And I said, did you write that monologue? And she said, yes, I did. Now we know. Now we know. Now we know. Breaking news. Um, (laughs) And also I said, well, what are you doing now? And she said, well, it's funny you should ask because I'm here because I'm preparing for my next role. And I said, oh, what's that? Oh. It's Julia Child. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. She that's why she was to talking to the vegetables. Absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Would you like to be in butter? And you just chop uh, them and chop them and chop them. <laughs> okay, I have a question for you, actually. The world has clearly changed in so many important and thoughtful ways. What do brands need to be doing now to navigate? What do fashion brands need to be doing now to navigate the needs of consumers today? Well, it's interesting because I think uh, obviously everything has changed and how these brands are going to reach people has changed dramatically. But I think when you think about the younger generation of Gen X or Gen Y or whatever they're called, um, you know, I think fashion brands have to stand for something Um, and they can't just stand for themselves anymore. You know, they can't just tell their own heritage, quote unquote, storytelling, that's just not going to suffice. They have to be engaged in the world and in the issues that are facing the world and particularly this generation. Um, It sounds really sort of pretentious to say this, but things like climate change and inclusion and, you know, all of these issues, these kids are really engaged in. And the brands that are engaged in those organic, clean in the beauty world, those are the brands that are getting attention and loyalty. And are they talking to them in an intelligent way, in your opinion? Well, I think that depends on the brand. I think right now is such a tumultuous time. And 
it's hard to see clearly through this time, particularly the election and the pandemic, what's going to really work. I think people are really trying everything. I think you're either going to have to be on a very niche local level or you're going to have to be very mass. I don't think there's any in between anymore. What else is innovative out there right now? We, we talked about couture and about uh, there's no fashion week anymore, right? There's no there's no runway shows. It's all being done virtually. Yeah, there's no runway shows and there's no real fashion week. I mean, I think this is something that will that we were headed towards anyway because people were wondering, you know, how many collections could a designer do? They've gotten up to you know men's collections, women's. Fall, winter, spring, summer, resort. It, it was becoming way too much. And retailers were demanding much more merchandise. They needed weekly drops of merchandise. And, and at the same time, people weren't buying as much. So I think what we're seeing now is going to be a big shift away from the traditional idea of seasons and fashion shows and you know, for over a decade, people have not bought fashion in the same way as they did maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Nobody buys like a total look from one brand anymore. I think people are more inspired in the moment. And also, I do believe, and I do believe this will come back. It's obviously not happening right now, but travel retail is where luxury is going to go and I think stay and remain forever. Um, the importance of the way people shop when they're on vacation in the luxury sector. I think that was really what people were buying and spending big money on. I mean, you could ask like, you know, the Hermes boutique in St. Bart's makes more money in the week between Christmas and New Year's than they do anywhere else in the world. Wow. I- I'm sort of fascinated Keep by Mrs. The- McCuddy out of there, please. <laughs> We're going to St. Bart's for Christmas. (laughs) I'm sort of fascinated by the idea of where fashion comes from, that it's generated out of culture. It's generated out of the kind of mess of all the events, of everything that's happening, all filtered through these fashion designers. And and then eventually it ends up as clothes and and other accessories. What do you think COVID is going to do to fashion? Well, I mean, there's the obvious answer of like fashion is now about the home and where you live and how you work from home. Um, people are buying sweatpants. Sweatpants to work. Um, you know, there was a designer who had a whole line and he canceled it and made it only about sweatpants and sweatshirts. Um, Kate Betts, is Anna Wintour at home right now in a pair of sweatpants? Yeah, everybody is. I mean, really? yeah, nobody is like, is she yelling at them? Go anywhere. But do you think this will have like, we're, we're going to come out of this, you know, maybe in a year or however long it takes, but like, what do you think of with a knock-on effect? Are, are sweatpants going to be cooler to wear out of the house? No. Oh here's the thing. They already were. But here's the thing. Um, fashion always reacts against itself, you know, from season to season, from decade to decade. We will go through this pandemic in sweatpants, and the pandemic will end, and people will always, always want to dress up and have fashion as a tool to make themselves feel better about themselves. And so I actually predict that there will be a return to fashion kind of in the way that, you know, you saw fashion coming out of the seventies into the eighties. It was exploded into this extreme expression of wealth, but you know, it was over the top, even fashion after the war. I mean, Christian Dior 
became famous overnight, literally with one show in 1947, because he made dresses with like yards and yards of fabric. Women during the war had been in ration, you know, they couldn't buy fabric. They couldn't wear clothes like that. It was so extravagant and so new. And they'd been in such a dark place. And all of a sudden, everybody wanted to wear like basically a ball gown during the day. And that's how we got the 50s silhouette. I do have to say that I'm married to a Parisian who banned sweatpants from our house. So I... I brought a pair home one time. They were a gift actually from Roots Canada, and they were gone overnight. I couldn't find them, and then I was informed that there would be no sweatpants in the house. <laughs> so I do I do wear dress pants in the morning. Well, Some, I, on good days, funny. I'm allowed to wear jeans. My husband's not allowed to wear jeans, and he still doesn't understand it, and he's clueless anyway. Bill knows him. But he can't understand why he can't wear jeans. Not that he cares, but he just can't understand why. <laughs> doesn't care to understand. He doesn't really look good in them. I've seen them when you were out of town one time, and it's uh, it's not a good look for him. <laughs> oh, we got a rat. What are you wearing right now, Kate? I'm actually wearing my usual uniform of, like, gray pants and a blue crew neck merino wool sweater. You mentioned uh, the, the blue sweater monologue from uh, that famous movie, The Devil Wears Prada, and I wonder about... Fast forward now to the book you wrote about uh, the first lady, Michelle Obama. She was famous for going to Banana Republic and J. Crew and buying very fashionable things. Uh, what was it like researching that and then talking to her and determining her style? Well, it was a fascinating thing to work on. I, I actually, it was probably one of the most interesting, inspiring things I've ever done. Um, I didn't. You know, I didn't really know much about Chicago, and I spent a lot of time there to kind of in- understand her childhood and where she grew up and where she came from, and the fashion of Chicago, which is very different from New York. Um, and I also went and spent a lot of time, because I worked at Time Magazine at that time, I was allowed into her press pool in the White House. So I spent six months in the press pool, in Michelle Obama's press pool, and it was Fascinating because we weren't allowed to interview her. The Obamas didn't do book interviews because they were writing their own books, obviously, now. <laughs> Hindsight is twenty twenty, um, And $65 million. Um, but she was, it was so interesting to watch her because the fashion was very specific and very well thought out. She wore bright colors. She almost looked like a 50s housewife most of the time. She did not, you know, she was kind of taking a page from Hillary Clinton and a page from Jackie Kennedy. She didn't, she was using fashion to her advantage, but she didn't want it to become something that alienated people. And all of those gestures of wearing a, you know, $15 sweater from The Gap or wearing the same shoe all the time, very low heel, or wearing beautiful costume jewelry that anybody could afford. or all of the bold prints that she wore. It was all very specific about, A, being very feminine, but most importantly, being the hostess, the first hostess of America, which is what the first lady has always been. And what Americans want the first lady to be is very, very kind of sexist sounding and backwards, but she has to be the person in that house who's like occupying that space. And I thought that Michelle Obama did an incredible, 
incredible job of that. Did she like the book? Yes, she did. She also really um, does this incredible thing, which pissed off the press a lot, but I thought it was brilliant, is that every time she did a press appearance in the White House or on the South Lawn, she would always invite school children, and they kind of became the people that would ask the questions, and the press was, you know, blocked by these school children, which they couldn't complain That's about. That's adorable. It's <laughs> great. Absolutely and, brilliant. And it was also like she's letting all of these kids into the White House. And, you know, some of them were high school, some of them were kindergarten. But but it was like a brilliant thing because it was a screen. It was like a human screen from the press. <laughs> Absolutely. What are you going to do? Mrs. Obama, I'm I'm Dave from Highlights Magazine. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like um, first ladies often sort of have fashion thrust upon them. They have their own style coming in, and then they're sort of shaped by the office. We had a first lady uh, for a number of years where uh, she came from the fashion world. How would you contrast Melania's style with Michelle? Well, I think Melania's style is really about armor and protecting herself from people, whereas Michelle's style was about connecting to people and building a bridge to people. She was using style to make a connection. Melania is wearing military jackets. She, that's her style. Her style is to sort of armor herself. I don't mean to keep coming back to Anna, but to be a strong woman like her in the publishing world, did she have to be obnoxious? I don't think she has to be obnoxious. I think she has to be um, strong and Stick to her decisions. And I think that is something that she has done um, pretty well. I think it's a very fine line, though, between sticking to your opinions and decisions and vision and listening to other people. And I think if you stop listening to people, you get into trouble. And I think that might have been a problem. It, I, I have to say, though, I feel like Anna comes in for a lot of grief. I worked with a lot of editors-in-chief, most of whom were men, and most of whom um, were intense, let's just say. <laughs> and, and, like, and you just don't hear that same kind of criticism. Can you believe he shouted at that person? Can you believe he belittled this person? Can you believe he did this, this, this? That never – you don't hear it. Yeah. You just hear, oh, but step careful around him. Maybe don't, uh, don't cross him. But like – you're not going to hear, can you believe it? But when you think of other women editor-in-chiefs, like Deborah Needleman was my boss at T-Magazine, and Hanya, who is helming it right now, should, they don't have that sort of relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sort of reputation. People just respect Deborah Needleman without saying, oh, she's domineering. Right. I don't know if it's the same kind of position. I mean, I know, speaking from my own experience, having worked for Anna pretty closely with her and also being an editor-in-chief myself, especially in the front row and in the fashion world, they project onto you who they want you to be. And it's very hard to be authentic in that world because nobody else is. So if you can achieve that, you you, like, wow, more power to you because, and she will survive in your opinion. No. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You think that that what is survive? I mean, survive is, it's not a question of survive. It's a question of like every, you know, everybody in their time. Right. Time's up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. It does seem like, yeah, the workplace has, has evolved and changed and uh, people's tolerance for various things have, has evolved and changed. All right. Let's go to the lightning round with Kate Betts. Uh, interview you always wanted that got away. Oh, God. 
or a dream interview. My that you dream would like interview to do. is Coco Chanel, but obviously that was never going to happen. Um, <laughs> interview. Well, it's funny because I once um, was asked to interview Martha Stewart for the cover of Time magazine. And I had to go to like a family reunion that was super important. My mom was really sick and I couldn't do the interview and I was so torn. And I remember <laughs> that I turned the interview down and the cover of Time magazine down. And I remember going to a dinner later and Barbara Walters was there. And I asked, I told her this story and she said, you did the right thing. Trust me. I gave up so much of my family life for this. Oh, that's oh, wow. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, but you know, Martha, right? Or you've yeah, met her on the I Hamptons her, or, yeah. I know her. And I, I just, it was like, an, you know, for so many reasons, it was a great opportunity that I just couldn't take. Kate, you did a good thing. <laughs> Kate, you mentioned Coco Chanel. Uh, what fascinates you about Coco? You know, I love her story mostly because it spans almost an entire century. I'm a history student and I love European history, especially. Um, but she lived through two world wars. She dominated the fashion business through two world wars. She is a complete invention, which to my mind is just such a fashion thing. I mean, fashion is all about invention self-invention, reinvention. Um, and she had, she was a Kardashian with credibility. Yeah. She had such character too. And I remember John Fairchild had actually known her and used to tell stories about her that were hilarious about how she would like stick the pins in the fitting models and smoke and drop her cigarettes on the floor and in her house. I mean, she was outrageous. And, and also once again, I keep coming back to this, um, incredibly engaged in the culture around her. And she also kind of is the first person who made fashion equivalent to a lifestyle. Before Chanel, people were going to local tailors or, you know, there were designers like Poiret and Madame Gray who were incredibly talented, but they didn't know how to market themselves. And Chanel did that with fragrance, first of all. But then in so many other ways, I mean, using costume jewelry that people could actually afford and so many things that are still really foundations of the fashion business today. So could there be another Coco Chanel and who would it, where would it come from and, and what would she look like? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, these days it's, it's, I don't know if that kind of endurance is possible in fashion because it's coming from so many different places. It is so democratic um and it's such a expression of so many different cultures i don't think one person can dominate it like that anymore kate we're living through this kind of intense political moment we're recording this in this intense sort of political moment um if you were either going to be the first lady or you were going to dress the first lady for the inauguration what do you think you'd you'd put her in oh my god <laughs> or are you in that is a really tough question. And and what is the inauguration even going to look like, actually? Right. These are, these are all good questions. Uh, Let's just say it was a glorious, COVID-free, regular old inauguration coming out of all of this terrible strife. We've right. I mean, you know, most first ladies, they either wear red or blue, and many of them wear white, because white is the sort of symbol of rebirth and new beginnings. But I think I would choose something blue. Um, I'm sure that it would not be as extravagant 
as past first ladies. I remember I got in a lot of trouble. I was reporting for on the inauguration, the last one for CNN, and I was at one of the the service ball, and uh, the president and first lady arrived with the president's daughter, and I said, "Oh my God, the daughter is wearing the the first lady's gown," and I didn't <laughs> because her it was a hand me down, and you recognized no, it and called it out. No, I mean it was her dress was the the inaugural. It was the gown. gown. The showpiece. Yeah. And the first lady was just wearing a white column that, you know, any old person could wear at any time. And the symbolism was there. Yeah. And the other, the daughter was in the glittering gold flecked tool ball gown by Oscar. And I got so slammed on Twitter. It was unbelievable. People freaked (laughs) out that I said that on television. (laughs) Well, let's talk about social media. How, what's the role of the influencer? today in the fashion world. Well, I mean, you know, that's where the, that's where the power is. That's, that's why things like Vogue and Anna Winter and all of those people are, are kind of been sidelined by people with followings that are 40 times bigger than the readership of Vogue, you know, any celebrity, any Kardashian, any, you know, any influencer, even influencers that we've never even heard of. Um, or don't even seemingly have much style, frankly, but have huge followings. Uh, I remember I worked uh, on a project in Silicon Valley a few years ago. It was a startup, a shopping startup, and um, the guy who was the technologist behind it was from Google, and the woman who was helping with build the following was 27, and she had the biggest following at the time, this was in 2012, I think. She had the biggest following on Pinterest, not because she had any style or taste, simply because her best friend from high school was one of the guys who started Pinterest. So she was the third follower in the algorithm. <laughs> oh she had the most followers. And people were paying her so much money just to, you know, put something on her Pinterest board. So that's not really a democratization of content creation, is it? It's still hierarchical in so many ways. Yeah. I mean, that's a hierarchical algorithm, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it it, it totally confused me. I, I could not wrap my head around this young woman who was perfectly nice and, you know, very ambitious, obviously, but like didn't really know what she was doing and didn't really care. Didn't matter. Well, let's talk about that period. You were the, the editor of Harper's Bazaar for how long? For two years. It was and how stressful was it that? was pretty stressful. I mean, I had a newborn baby that was born three days after I got the job. And <laughs> Perfect. My boss came into my office on my first day. I was still wearing maternity clothes and I was still bent over from a C-section walking like bent over. And she swooped down into my office and said, I hope you've given your baby away. Oh my goodness! <laughs> wow. We that's should that, say that's for the record, kind, nurturing fashion. We, we should say for the record that you did not. I did not. No. <laughs> not not that not one. That I one, know no. your children, and you have them all. Yes. That was a tough period. Yeah, for you. it was very tough. Um, but you know what? It was also incredibly. The 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 irony of the whole thing is, I was. It was an incredible time in fashion. It was the end of the 90s, the beginning of the 2000s. The whole internet thing was taking off. Um, And, you know, we had the opportunity and we took the opportunity to remake a magazine entirely. 
And people did or didn't like it. Who cares now? Um, but we had some incredible stories. We had great writers. We used incredible photographers, all of whom now shoot for Vogue. Um, and it was a moment of, you know, I'm very proud of it because what we did was really ahead of our time. And, and uh, one of the young women I hired, actually, to be the editor of a section called The Bazaar, which was in the back of the book, is now the editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar, Tamira oh, Nasser. Wow. And, you know, on top of all of that, I was able to learn how to be the editor-in-chief of a magazine in two years and get out. And I got a job at Time Magazine, which was always my dream from the beginning. So I took a little detour to get there, but I did get to Time Magazine. I remember a big deal was made, a big deal in the press world anyway, in the media world, about how much you made. Uh, it was a, it was sort of talked about in in a couple of places, and I thought that. Do you think that would have happened if a man had gotten the no, job? No, no. And you know, by the way, that wouldn't have happened at all if if uh, I was, I hadn't leaked it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no, I did, I no someone Thanks, someone no. was pushing that out there who didn't want oh, me really? to have that job. Right. Wow. <laughs> Uh, listen, this has been an enlightening look behind the curtain at the uh, fashion world and everything involved in it because she was at the front lines. Kate Betts, it was a pleasure having you on the Accutron Thank you show. so much for having me. On behalf of Cool Hunting's David Graver and Bon Vivant Scott Alexander, I'm Bill McCuddy for the Accutron Show. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Accutron Show. To hear all our shows, visit AccutronWatch.com. For upcoming guests as well as behind-the-scenes action, follow us on Instagram at AccutronWatch. From the 29th floor of the Empire State Building, until next time, Accutron time. Set your tuning forks.